Maury, my takeaway on the uh, interview with Simcha Rothman is that the Supreme Court uh, has to be reined in. Welcome to Power Politics, the Mishpacha podcast exploring the flashpoints of American and global current affairs and how they impact the Jewish community. I'm Benjamin Rose, Mishpacha's editor-at-large. And I'm Maury Litwack, a two-decade veteran of political campaigns at Capitol Hill. Join us weekly as we delve into these critical topics and more on Power Politics. In today's program, has the time come for a format change in the State of the Union message? Has a major Republican donor turned their back on Donald Trump? We will also speak with Knesset member Simcha Rothman, one of the architects of Israel's controversial judicial reform plan, and of course, our influencer of the week and our fearless forecast. We're first going to start with the State of the Union message as we're talking uh, today. The message was just uh, given over by President Biden last night. Uh, Maury, I always like the pomp and circumstance of the State of the Union message. For me, the highlight is not what the president says. The highlight is when the sergeant at arms walks into the House chamber and announces, Mr. Speaker, the President of the United States. And then what I like to do is I like to judge based on the applause and the roar how popular the president is. So I always remember back in 1991 when George H.W. Bush was uh, the victor in the Gulf War. He postponed the State of the Union message that year until uh, the war was pretty much over. And he got the most thunderous ovation that I ever remembered. Last night, I'm listening to uh, the uh, reception that Biden got and is rather subdued. There were a couple of people who were trying to uh, get excited in the background, but I didn't really see much enthusiasm. I know we're going to talk about whether the time has come for a change of format, but I'm just interested in your thoughts on uh, the reaction to the president and how this went down in America. The history of the State of the Union really answers your question, which is State of the Union, what's it about? It fulfills the requirement of Article 2, Section 3, Clause 1 of the U.S. Constitution of the president to periodically give the Congress information on the State of the Union. George Washington gave the very first one. He actually gave a speech. Jefferson stopped the practice, either they say because he thought it was too much like a monarchy or because others claim later on that he was a bad speaker. He just didn't want to give the address. And over the next hundred plus years, nobody delivered it in person until Woodrow Wilson brings it back. FDR really makes it more into a state of the union and address of priorities. In the 80s, Ronald Reagan brings in guests from all over the place and starts to really make it into a television experience like the actor he was. But overall, it doesn't really make news. Overall, it's a bit of a muted affair. Yes, President Monroe used it to introduce the Monroe Doctrine. Yes, LBJ used it to talk about the war on poverty. Yes, George W. Bush used it to talk about the axis of evil. But it's a pretty much a partisan affair. And it's been a partisan affair for some period of time. So when a Republican shouts out during Obama's State of the Union, or when Pelosi famously uninvites Trump because of the government shutdown, you just have an environment now where the State of the Union is sort of less of a read of how popular president is, and I think more of a read of the partisan nature of this, which is why you have a response. And there's literally a, we don't like all that, so now we're a response, the other party is responding to it. So I'm not surprised it was muted yesterday because we've taken this, which should be sort of the Super Bowl of political experiences, and we've watered it down significantly over the centuries into this uh, political exercise. We saw that partisan nature, I think, in a couple of moments of discomfort, as I would call them, uh, when uh, President Biden talked about Republicans wanting to sunset Social Security and Medicare, 
Vice President Kamala Harris gets up and gives him a standing ovation, while uh, Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House, just sits in his chair shaking his head and even smirking a little bit. Then uh, in the uh, rebuttal, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the governor of Arkansas, talked about the need for a new generation of GOP leadership. And, you know, her line that uh, the choice between Democrats and Republicans is like the choice between normal and crazy. That's that's pretty strong. If you wanted to grade these State of the Union responses, Politico said uh, a great quote, which I loved, which says that Biden's grand insight is that you are only as unpopular as your enemies and their ideas are popular. So from that perspective, the analysis is, okay. he's doing pretty well because when Marjorie Taylor Greene's getting up there and shouting you down and calling you a liar, when you're sort of being contrasted with all kinds of other sort of very far right individuals in the Republican Party, your ideas and your goals seem normal. Similarly, when you're Sarah Huckabee Sanders, you get a good grade for your speech from the perspective of she doesn't really mention Trump. She makes it about herself and her vision for the Republican Party. And so these two are, it really speaks to what this whole night's about, which is just a contrast between the two parties. And okay, mission accomplished from both the State of the Union and the response. When we were talking earlier about Sarah Huckabee Sanders and the new generation of GOP leadership, so we're going to see that uh, when it comes to uh, money and politics. So I also want to talk about the uh, Koch brothers, uh, Charles and David Koch from Wichita. Now, their names are spelled K-O-C-H, but nothing like Ed Koch whatsoever. Koch is the correct pronunciation. Their father, Fred, made a fortune earlier in the previous century in fracking, which was a very new concept then. Uh, Today, the Koch Industries is America's second largest private corporation. Their revenues are somewhere north of $100 billion. They've donated hundreds of millions of dollars to political campaigns, mostly local. According to their own audit, uh, they engaged in 457 different races last year in the midterms with a win rate of over 80%. Now, uh, the Koch family has founded the Cato Institute, uh, which was uh, America's first libertarian think tank. They also founded Americans for Prosperity. They were instrumental in formation of the Tea Party wing of the Republicans. And they're low-key. What I thought was interesting in a Time Magazine article that I read on them last week, again, the article was last week, or the last week in January, I should say, and they used a 2007 file photo of Charles Koch. So obviously, he doesn't get photographed too much in public. But what made the news in uh, what the Koch brothers did was a declaration released by the CEO of Americans for Prosperity, one of their think tanks. Uh, The CEO's name is Emily Seidel. It was included in a memo to staffers and activists. Now, she never mentions Trump by name, but what she said is, our country must move past the current political situation. We've got to turn the page on the past several years. And then she said, if we want to elect better people, we need better candidates. And if we want better candidates, we've got to get involved in elections earlier and in more primaries. So, you know, to me, these were two definite stabs at President Trump when she talks about turning the page and also getting better candidates, because uh, we know that President Trump was criticized for some of the people he supported. So uh, what I'd like to hear more on is how important uh, the support of the Koch brothers is and whether other Republican donors are going to potentially follow suit. Do you know what that sound is? You know what that sound you hear in the background is? It's not just the Koch brothers Uh, money involved in politics. When you mention the 80% success rate they have, it's the 7 million doors they were knocking on. That's what you're hearing. 7 million doors. Well, that's what they've been spending their money on. And that's what's making an impact on this um, Republican bench, this rising leadership within the Republican Party across the country. 
Who's actually knocking on these doors? So yeah, typically when they do this, I mean, they're paid canvassers. They're paying people, usually fresh out of college or people who are looking for jobs or work, and they're paying them to do those that knocking. But it's very similar to the teachers union does this very similar thing. They spend a lot of money and they go out and they knock on doors. Now they're knocking on doors probably are going to be teachers or people who work in the schools, but it's very common when you talk about money in politics, it's very easy to just sort of imagine someone putting uh, their credit card down or a check down and money being injected into campaigns. And now there's these ads on the airwaves and things like that. But the individuals who are winning these races are the ones, whether it's labor or it's the Koch brothers or other groups, they're spending their money on deploying an army of people to knock on your door, an army of people to pick up the phone, an army of people to convince you that their candidates and their individuals on the ground are the ones you want to vote for. And so I think it is having a very big impact what they're doing. And that ground operation of the Koch brothers abandoning the former president and saying, we don't want this brand and his politics and those associated with him, it's a big deal. You can always say, okay, I could find another donor. I could find another person to fund what I'm doing. But can you find another ground game? I don't think so. So they're a pretty crucial element. And again, will others now follow their lead? I'm not sure if others are going to follow their lead. They are a bit more moderate on the Republican side. They back Mitt Romney previously and other candidates are more moderate on the Republican side. I'm not sure people are going to follow their lead. But I do think it's a big, um, if you're deciding you're going to back Trump, if you decide you're going to back Trump candidates, you got to have that ground game. And it's not so easy. It's much easier to just write a check than it is to actually build that army. And they've built an army. It's my pleasure to introduce Knesset member Simcha Rothman, the chair of the Constitution, Law, and Justice Committee of the Knesset, member of the Religious Zionism Party, which is shared by Bezalel Smotrich. Born in B'nai Brock, Simcha Rothman earned a law degree from Tel Aviv University and Northwestern University in the U.S., and he's author of a very interesting book called The Ruling Party of Bagats. Bagats is the uh, Israeli acronym for uh, the High Court of Justice. The subtitle of the book is How Israel Became a Legalocracy. So, Simcha, again, thank you for joining us today. Can you define for us legalocracy and then tell us how Israel became one? How many hours do we have to explain the, the book and the process? Let's just say it in short. First, with some uh, simple terms. Uh, the Supreme Court in Israel has powers unlike any other court on the face of the earth. Full stop. There is no other court that can deal with any issue at the first and last instance, meaning there is no appeal. You can go there and appeal on any issue that you want without any need to show that you have what it's called standing, reason, why you're going to the court. It's not limited, not by constitution, not by anything. The court can do whatever it wants, regardless of basically Anything, no law, no basic law. Can you give us an example of some place? One example. We have many people talk about the case of Ariadne. Now that's all the news, right? Ariadne was appointed the minister and he was canceled. Okay, but that's something that you can talk about the political. Uh, you can say he was indicted, he was found guilty, many issues. Let's put that aside, okay? I want to give an example that is not political. Another minister, the Minister of Treasury, not today, a few years ago, by law, he has the power to appoint the head of the equivalent of the IRS, the taxes division in Israel. So it's an appointment by law, 
in behalf of the Minister of Treasury in Israel. Now, he got a recommendation from a committee to appoint someone. He didn't want to appoint this guy. He said, I don't think he's good. And he asked the committee to give him another name. The committee refused, and the court and the guy who wanted to be the head of the Israeli IRS appealed to the Supreme Court and said, I want you to say that it's unreasonable not to appoint me and make the Treasury Minister appoint me. So a power to appoint the head of the IRS that was vested by law in the head of the government, the court said, you must appoint this God. Now, if there is a problem in Israel with the taxes, if they treat the citizens not well, if they don't get enough taxes or they get too much taxes, who do you go and complain to? The government. Who do you demonstrate to? The government. Who appointed the head of the IRS? against the wall, the court. Now, there are many examples like that, many. It's not a single example where the governments need to appoint someone. They either want to appoint someone or don't want to appoint someone. And the court says, you have to do what I say, not because there is some law saying you have to do it, because for me, it's not reasonable what you're doing. There's a similar process that goes on when it comes to selecting judges for the Supreme Court. And this is very important. As I pointed out on our podcast last week, there are two big retirements coming up on the court this coming October. Judge Esther Chayut, who's the president of the court, and uh, Anat Baron, who are also two of the more liberal members of the court. And the next year you have uh, Uzi Vogelman, who's also a very liberal member. Now, three judges have to be selected to replace them in the next uh, year and a half. And a big part of the bill that you have presented to the Knesset will be to change the selection process of the judges. Tell us briefly how judges are selected now, how your law will change that selection process, and why you think it'll be better for the Israeli people. So first, how judges are appointed. So I started to say that the court in Israel has power unlike any other. No other court and no other government agency or government power in Israel or in any other country which is the power to appoint itself. The Supreme Court has the power in Israel to veto any new candidate that you want to appoint. So it means that if you have a self-perpetuating court, that if the current judges do not want someone to get in, you won't get in if we won't change the system. Now, this system created a lot of problems. The Supreme Court, as we said, can deal with any issue based on reasonability or no other reasons. So you can decide any issue based on basically on the personalities and the viewpoints of its members. So if you have the court to decide what to do with, for example, the ultra orthodox draft law, how many judges are reading or ultra orthodox? Zero. Exactly. So the court, according to its own PR campaign that they are running now, supposed to defend the minority. The ultra-Orthodox, the Haredim in Israel, are a minority. Are they defending the minority, the Haredi minority, when they're canceling time and again the law? No, they're not doing it because they don't even understand the needs of the Haredim as a minority. And they have zero ultra-Orthodox judges. How will your law change the uh, selection process? No, the selection process today is a committee of mine, three Supreme Court justices, sitting justices, not even four, sitting Supreme Court justices, two ministers, two Knesset members, and two members of the Israeli Bar Association. If you count, you see five 
not politicians. They're not politicians, meaning that the entire population of the state of Israel is represented in this committee by four out of nine, meaning a minority. And if you look at the majority, the ruling parties, they're represented usually by three out of nine. They're outnumbered. So you have the majority to appoint judges. You can appoint a judge against the better judgment of the entire population of Israel. Even if all candidates object, all elected officials objecting to a candidate. No, not to the Supreme Court. Then we are offering that it will be three ministers, three Knesset members, two from the coalition, one from the opposition, and three judges. So you will still have judges in the selection process, which you can criticize me on that because you can say it's a compromise, but it's okay. You will have the majority in the committee selected by the public. Elected officials. And the Knesset will be able to appoint judges after a public hearing. Today there is no public hearing to Supreme Court justices. They will have a public hearing in the Constitution Committee in the Knesset. The opposition are represented there. They can ask questions. They can ask about the appointment process. It will be much more transparent, much more democratic than it is today. It won't be secret. It won't be behind closed doors, but it will be controlled by the majority the same way it exists in Canada, in Ireland, in Sweden, in Norway, in Australia, in New Zealand, in the U.S. In the U.S., when you have the majority in the Senate and the president, you appoint judges by the decision, basically, of the Democrats or the Republican Party. They are the ones who decide. Depends who in the government. And usually the appointments in the U.S. is when the Senate and the president are from the same party, because otherwise you can't really appoint. What's the difference between the authority that the Supreme Court of the United States has versus the authority that the Supreme Court of Israel has? Because I think when they hear Supreme Court, they think of their own Supreme Court. I know you're traveling to America and you're talking this about people, but I think for our listeners, they say, okay, I understand the appointments versus non-appointments, but in actual power and authority... We like our Supreme Court to have power and authority. There's three branches of government. What's yes, the problem? Of Isn't it the same of thing course. in Israel? So in the U.S. you have a constitution. The court cannot decide to cancel laws just because it doesn't like it. The court can cancel laws if they are against the constitution. It was accepted by a supermajority of the states and in the Congress. And it's very, uh, you have 200 years of jurisprudence to explain to you how a certain phrase is being interpreted by the judges. You have something to work with. In Israel, we don't have a constitution. So if the court in Israel cancel laws, based on what? So in Israel, we have a situation where the court tells you, I am canceling this law. Why? I think it's against the basic law of human dignity. Okay, and then I ask the court, okay, but the basic law of human dignity was passed in the Knesset by 32 Knesset members. The law that you are canceling now it was passed by 80 Knesset members that said that they, they think it's an excellent law. How come you canceling this law because of that law? It's not the constitution. We don't have a constitution. And the court said, it is a constitution because I said so. There is no other country in the world that the constitution was created by the court. Israel, we did not have a constitution for many good reasons. I know for the people in the U.S. it's strange, but in Great Britain, you still don't have a constitution. And actually... The court in Great Britain cannot cancel parliament laws because of that. And also, if you have a constitution, there are many countries in the world that you have a constitution and still 
they said in the constitution that the court cannot declare a law against the constitution. It, can, it cannot cancel laws even when there is a constitution. So in Israel, you have a court that created for itself its own constitution. It's canceling law based on the constitution it created. And now, if it would be something that happens never, we would say, okay. But it happened in one year, five or six times in 2017. So any controversial law that was passed by right-wing coalition was either canceled or was ignored by the court. So the right is in power in Israel in legislating and the court canceled. If you're successful in passing this law in the Knesset, what's to stop the Supreme Court from saying, well, we don't think this is reasonable either and we're going to veto it? So the court itself got the legitimacy to do the, the crazy ass in my view, that he does, because the legislator was quiet about it. Once the Knesset tells us specifically, we don't we want you to have this power, you cannot tell the people you are acting on our behalf, as the court has done for many, many years, created the legitimation to what he's doing, because he said, I'm actually loving all what you told me to do in the basic law human rights and dignity, to cancel laws. If you want to cancel the law, even Chief Justice Barak, former Chief Justice Barak said, Whenever the Knesset will toss to stop, will stop. And now the Knesset is Bezrat Hashem going to tell the court to stop. So the legitimacy for the court to do what he's doing will stop Bezrat Hashem when this law was passed. Will the court ignore it? Will the court do what he wants with it? I don't know. Another point I just want to add, you asked about the Supreme Court of the U.S. versus the Supreme Court of Israel. I think there is only two numbers you need to know in order to understand the issue. How many cases that the Supreme Court in the U.S. deals with every year? The answer is between 60 to 100. That is the average. Now, what do you think is the number, the equivalent number in Israel? I have to remind you that the U.S. is very big, 300 million citizens. Israel is small, and we have less than 10 million. How many cases do you think the Supreme Court of the State of Israel deals with every year? 50, 100. The answer is 10,000. So the Supreme Court of Israel, now let's just say most of them are appeals, are small appeals, not of big significance, but let's just talk about the significant work, the ones that deals with political issues or with policy. So we're talking about 3,000 cases that even if the Supreme Court of Israel will reject 90% of the cases, he would still intervene in government action in 300 cases, which is three times more of what the entirety of the cases the Supreme Court of the U.S. deals with every year. That is the amount of intervention the state of Israel. When I say legalocracy, that was the question you asked me to begin with. And if we want to change the system in Israel and reform the justice system, that will be Israel tomorrow is a, it's not a democratic country. It is a country that is drawn by its judges and lawyers. And that is just plainly not democratic. And we have to change it and we have to fix it. Did you anticipate that there would be this kind of international ruckus? You have uh, the Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, weighing in on this. It was a topic of discussion in Davos at the recent World Economic Forum meeting. Did you ever anticipate uh, this kind of outcry, and uh, how do you plan on dealing with it? 
I think that if you understand the reason and the, the source of power, when you ask yourself, in a democratic country, and Israel basically was founded as a democratic country and is still a democratic country in spirit, how come the legitimacy and the power comes for this elite that, as we said, not representative of the state of Israel, it's not representative of its citizens, it's not representative of its minorities. Where do they get the power? And I would say in English, Yiddish, where do they get the chutzpah to do what they're doing? The answer would be from the support from the international elite. When they're canceling an action by the state of Israel, supposed to help Israel to fight terror better, when they stop the state of Israel from demolishing the house of a terrorist and to prevent the next terror acts. It's not a popular decision in Israel. Who gives them the support every day, not today when they are under attack? The day-to-day -day support that they get is from their friends, the judges from around the world. It's from the friends of the academia around the world. It's from the friends in Davos. That's their support group. That's their favor. So, of course, they will support them now when their position of undemocratic rule of the state of Israel is in jeopardy. My final question for you is, it seems like there's a tremendous amount of American politicians who speak out on internal domestic policies of Israel. As a member of Knesset, do you speak out on, on other people's domestic policies, other countries' domestic policies? Do you feel the need to go do that? Where do you think that stems from? Why do you think that happens? Is that standard, or do you feel like that is a, a unique environment that Israel is put into? So first, as I said, uh, in many other countries, it's also a battle of elites. So you can find people, for example, in the, the European Union that, of course, interfere in inner issues of countries within the European Union, usually. But, of course, the answers that you will get from me as a member of the Religious Zionist Party that everything that happens in the heart of nations in Israel, people care about what's happening in Israel. You can look at it. Some of it, of course, comes from anti-Semitism, but some of it comes, of course, from our friends from around the world. They genuinely care about what's happening in Israel because they see what's happening in Israel as affecting the whole world. And I will agree with that, of course. I understand that. But, of course... I think anyone who loves the state of Israel and the land of Israel and the nation needs to respect its sovereignty and say, I might be worried, but I trust the people of Israel that they chose the right elected officials. And I'm sure that they will do what's good for them. And I know that if Am Israel, if the, name, the nation of Israel will do what's good for them, it will be what's good for the entire world. Because uh, as a... Uh, and of course, as a member of the Religious Zionist Party, it's my deep belief. I thank everyone. And I would never say to anyone, it's none of your business, because actually what's happening in the state of Israel, in the land of Israel, it is the business of everyone to care about. But it's still, you need to respect the sovereignty and the choice of the people of Israel to make this reform. And I'm sure that after we all do what needs to be done and was long awaited by the public in Israel, we will have a stronger Israel, we will have a safer Israel. The state of Israel will be able to face the challenges, both domestically and internationally and security-wise, better with the Supreme Court 
and a justice system that works for the benefit of the state of Israel, I think we will be able to face the challenges better. Simcha Rothman, thank you for the thoughtful response and ending on an upbeat note. Thank you. Thank you very much. Maury, my takeaway on the uh, interview with Simcha Rothman is that the Supreme Court uh, has to be reined in. If they're dealing with literally thousands of cases a year in a small country like this, they're overworked. You know, let them take a break. Let them take it a little bit easier. And I think that if you have less uh, intervention, less judicial intervention, then maybe uh, the country can run a little smoother. Yeah, my takeaway is is that, once again, Israeli foreign policy just overshadows everything else. And to hear someone talk and discuss an issue which is really raging right now and the comparison and contrast between the American judicial system or the global judicial systems in other countries in Israel is just very uh, eye-opening. We've come to our influencer of the week. I have to say as a preface uh, to my influencer that I'm a couple of weeks late on this because this has been a developing story. But my influencer of the week is a gentleman by the name of Nate Anderson. He runs a firm called Hindenburg Research, which does forensic financial research. What they try to do is uh, uncover areas of potential fraud where uh, investors might be in danger at risk of uh, their money. Uh, What Hindenburg Research did about two or three weeks ago, they issued a report accusing a company called the Adani Group. That's one of India's biggest companies. And uh, they're also close to uh, Prime Minister Modi in India. They accused this uh, group of accounting fraud and stock manipulation. Now, the company strongly denies any wrongdoing, and the story is still playing out. But what happened was, is uh, Gautam Adani, who's uh, the chairman of the Adani group, was the richest man in India. Emphasis on the was. And he had just bought a controlling stake in the port of Haifa. He was photographed a couple of weeks ago with Netanyahu and talking about how he's not going to stop at the port of Haifa. He's going to make all sorts of investments and change the skyline of Haifa. So what happened was when this story came out, his group shed more than $113 billion from its market value, and its personal net worth plummeted in half from over $100 billion to $64 billion almost overnight. Now, I'm not crying for someone who's worth $64 billion, but again, Nate Anderson of Hindenburg Research, he issued this report. Uh, he's got to decide whether he stands by it or not. But anyone who's got the power to make that much wealth vanish almost overnight, wins my uh, award for Influencer of the Week. I got to worry about my own billions now, Benjamin. I got to worry about my own billions. My Influencer of the Week is uh, Senator Romney, Senator Mitt Romney. And the reason why is because the State of the Union occurred, and they were talking about the State of the Union, the response to the Union, but massive talk about Senator Mitt Romney, who took on George Santos and was look essentially really uh, calling him out on the floor of the State of the Union, and afterwards was calling him out as well, And I just think it's that McCain maverick uh, style that was so popular and is so needed in America, which is that independent thinker in politics, which Romney has been and he was during the Trump presidency and he continues to be. I just think that sort of moral compass and moral voice is why he's my pick of the week, Uh, just because you don't see a lot of that in politics. And the fact that he's making news on it and continues to hold someone accountable who all Americans uh, really uh, find uh, very distasteful, really demonstrates who he is and why there's uh, his place in American politics. Just as an aside, I'm old enough to remember George Romney, Mitt Romney's father. George Romney was governor of Michigan. He tried to run for president once also. I liked him, I remember, but I think he just had a little bit too much integrity. 
to uh, do what's needed to be done to become the president of the United States. His campaign didn't go very far, but his son is certainly, uh, you can say that uh, the uh, apple hasn't fallen far from the tree. Now, the fearless forecast, uh, this time I'm not going to be as fearless. I'm not going out on a limb. This has been talked about, but we're going to see it happen very soon. In Georgia, Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis will announce her intention to indict former President Trump on charges of election fraud. And uh, we're going to see a a tremendous ruckus in uh, Trump world, and it's going to be a big upheaval in American politics as well. Uh, We could be seeing that sometime in the next couple of weeks even. My fearless forecast is in Chicago, so not south like you, but in the Midwest, where Mayor Lori Lightfoot is in the election of her life for Chicago mayor, and I don't believe she makes the runoff. I don't think she makes the runoff. I don't think she gets reelected, but not making the runoff is even bigger news. And mostly it's about crime. Mostly that's the topic about crime and police reform and uh, those topics. So I think that the forecast is not so bold because most people, I think, are predicting that she loses. But I do believe that from a fearless perspective, it becomes larger than Mayor Lightfoot and really about whether or not these big cities are messaging correctly on crime and police reform, which I know is something we're going to be talking about in upcoming podcasts. And I know it's something that's extremely concerning to um, our New York listeners. So I do think that that is uh, the upcoming uh, forecast, uh, which doesn't bode well for the mayor of Chicago or the topic of uh, crime and criminal justice reform and police reform and all these things that we're seeing uh, bubbling to the surface in American politics. Thanks, Maury. And that wraps it up for today. And once again, I want to extend a special thanks to Knesset member Simcha Rothman, who gave us a lot of time on a very, very busy day uh, to talk about uh, the controversial Israel judicial reform. Uh, we also spoke about uh, the State of the Union message, and we also spoke about uh, money and politics, which is really the essence of power politics. You are listening to Power Politics, unpacking the power players shaping our world, a Mishpacha podcast. Enjoyed this episode? Leave us a rating and share with your friends. Have a topic you'd like us to discuss or a guest to suggest? We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a line on Twitter at the Mishpacha or at mishpacha.com forward slash power politics. This episode was produced by Jag and Detroit Podcasts with sound design by Cedar Media Studios. See you next week.